If you were Luke, what story would you tell? If you were Luke and you saw that your fellow followers of Jesus were losing heart, what strategy might you employ? In the first generation, in the time just after Jesus walked on the earth, Christianity was really just a ragtag group of followers. It was more of a movement than it was an organization, but they were already losing heart in those first few decades of Christianity. Inside the walls of the movement, the Christian leaders bickered with each other. Outside the walls of the movement, they often felt ridiculed, sometimes persecuted, and often threatened simply for following Jesus. But the biggest threat to their spiritual lives was that they wondered if Jesus was ever going to come back. He rose from that empty tomb. He ascended to sit at the right hand of God, but he promised to come back. And they were losing heart because he hadn't. What story would you tell them to make sure that none of them dared lose heart now? The reality of our lives is that we sometimes do lose heart. The Christian journey is not always a full tilt spiritual high. Sometimes our faithfulness waxes and sometimes it wanes. For example, what would you say if you were talking to Patricia and Manuel Oliver? Patricia and Manuel, Manuel lost their 18-year-old son in Parkland High School on Valentine's Day during those tragic shootings. And this summer would have been their son's 19th birthday. And so to remember Man, Manuel and Patricia's son, they decided that they would paint a mural. The mural was to be in El Paso, Texas. And so on a sunny summer morning, morning in August, this family gathered just miles away from the Walmart in El Paso where another mass shooting erupted. What could we possibly say to those parents so that they dared not lose heart? Sometimes you and I are called to walk with a friend through a difficult time and we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. We want to say something, but not the wrong thing or not anything. For example, what would you say if you were friends with my friend Greg, who was at the peak of his career when he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of skin cancer? He had just begun building his dream house, and one surgery might have fixed it all, but the cancer had already traveled from the skin into the bones and all the way to the lungs. And so while still years away from retirement, his doctor told him, this is the cancer that will take your life. I just can't tell you exactly when. Is there a story that we have that we could tell to Greg so that he would not lose heart, so that he would not be overwhelmed by navigating the medical maze or undergoing the grueling treatment so that his faith would sustain him through this next chapter? And what about us? What is the story that we wish someone would tell to us when we too occasionally stand on the brink of losing heart? When we are doing all that we can to scrape up enough money to pay that boy's college tuition and we find out he's not going to class. Or when we desperately want to become parents and we cannot conceive or when we're doing our part to reuse and recycle and compost and conserve 
and yet we still keep reading in the headlines that the environment is careening towards disaster. In those moments when we feel spiritually depleted, is there a story that someone could tell us so that we would not lose heart? Luke told them a parable, a riddle, one of those stories that you walk around inside of, musing about its meaning and its claim on you. It, Luke told a parable that he had heard Jesus tell, and it was a story that Jesus had heard his ancestors tell because there were various versions of this parable, both in the religious world and in the secular world. You can find versions of this parable in written documents of antiquity, but Jesus told it this way. He said there was a widow and there was a judge. Now, in Scripture, widows are always favored by God. Widows in that day and age might have been a 25-year-old woman with eight children, and there were laws to protect the widow and religious rules on the books for honoring the widow. And then there were the judges. And judges were not just civil figures wearing their black robes and metering out the rules. They were also religious leaders who were expected to advocate for the justice of the people on behalf of God. They were really seen not just as civic figures, but as agents of God's justice. But this judge in this parable, in this story, has already been hardened by life. We are told up front that this judge neither cares about God nor about God's people. Already this judge has broken the two key commandments. Love God, love neighbor. This judge does neither. And it is to this judge that the widow comes wearing her black scarf, veiling her hair and part of her face. And she goes before the judge and she petitions him and pleads her case against her opponent. And when the judge refuses her, she escalates. And she begins pestering him daily and bothering him repeatedly until finally she wears him out with her harsh confrontations. And so just to get rid of her, he relents and gives her what she wants. And she is vindicated. Her bold persistence pays off. And then Jesus says something like this. If the judge, who didn't care one whit about anybody, gave her justice, then how much more would the God who deeply cares about you grant you the justice that you long for? Would it work? Would that story empower us to not lose heart? Would it make you want to persevere like that widow? That persistent widow in the story reminds me of a real-life person named Louise who was a spy during World War I. In fact, she ran an entire spy network. That espionage network of women who worked on behalf of the British intelligence to defeat the Germans, their story is told in a fictionalized account by Kate Quinn, who writes a stirring novel about Louise and the other female spies. And just like the widow in today's parable, Louise was relentless. She risked her life hundreds of times to pursue what she believed passionately was right. She was courageous, tough as steel, 
and unflinching in her patriotism, and on numerous occasions, the soldiers told her it was too dangerous now to cross into enemy territory to steal one more clue, and she went anyway. After the war, we are told in the postscript of the novel that Louise received medals. She was named a hero, a heroine, but they didn't quite know how to talk about her. And so what they would often say is, oh, Louise, she was so feminine. She was tiny in stature. When you and I are feeling small and helpless, does a story of how someone else persevered in the face of terrible odds, would that empower us to not lose heart? And what about the judge? The judge in the story, the one who holds all the power to grant justice. Maybe the reason that you and I can persevere in this life is because we believe that there is a God who actually does care about us. Someone has suggested that what Luke wants us to see is that God is not like that judge. God is not worn out by our bothering and interrupting. Instead, God is steadfast and faithful and eager to help. God is like that parent sitting by the telephone waiting for us to ask for help. God listens. God listens better than anyone. God wants justice more than any of us. God is patient with us merciful. Even when we are mad at ourselves, God is eager to assist us in making the world just right. If we have lost heart because we're afraid maybe God doesn't even exist, or if God does exist, does God actually care? Then here is a parable that aims to tell us that we still have a willing partner whose heart stands ready and open to embracing our hurts and partnering with all of us to be a part of this saving enterprise in the world. And so when we are about to lose heart, what are we to do? Are we to persevere? Or are we to just sit back and trust in the character of God? Is it up to God? Or is it up to us? Luke tells a parable about what transpires between them. The parable paints a picture of a relationship that involves us both. In his book, Craddock Stories, Fred Craddock tells a story about the day he met Barbara Jenkins. Fred said he'd never forget the day that he met Barbara. It was one of those little receptions, don't really remember what the reception was about, but it was a reception where there was a punch bowl on the table and a little glass dish with salted nuts and some of those pale, soft green mints, that kind of reception. You know, they had the triangular-shaped sandwiches on a platter made of pimento cheese and tuna fish and ham salad. You would have to eat a lot of those to make a meal of it, said Fred. And people were just standing around making chit-chat. Oh, anybody see the game yesterday? Sure is getting a little cool. Fall must be coming. It was that kind of chit-chat. And then Barbara came in the room, and the whole room changed. Who's that? Well, that's Barbara. Well, who's Barbara? 
Barbara, she's the one that spends her time writing letters and making phone calls and going always to try to make a difference in how the law treats juvenile offenders. Night and day, seven days a week, Barbara worries the authorities to death. And so Fred went over to Barbara. You enjoy doing this, Barbara? Well, no, no, not really, she said. You get paid for this, you're on salary. No, no, no. Well, you must have had children yourself and they were in trouble with the law and you wanted, no, no, no. Then why in the world? I mean, it's no fun. You're not making any money. None of your friends are doing it. And she said, I have to. She had to. She had to because there was something between Barbara and God, between the widow and the God of justice and mercy that enabled Barbara to not lose heart. She had to. The world is full of problems, sometimes our own, sometimes someone else's. How is it that we do not lose heart? Late last spring, we traveled, some of us here in the congregation, to the Holy Land, and we saw a lot of sites where something that is written about in the Bible might have happened. By the end of the trip, I was tired of seeing sites. I didn't really need to see one more pile of rocks where Jesus may have trod. But on the last day, we visited a site that was lush and green. It was called the Garden of the Tomb, and the tour guide was brilliant and honest and forthright and compelling. And we sat down on benches, and we looked at the place where the crucifixion of Jesus may have taken place. It was just like some red dirt on the side of a road. And then we walked just a very short distance through the green lush garden to the place where there is a stone burial tomb and we took turns going in two at a time to see the stone burial tomb that may have been the one used after the crucifixion of Jesus, may have been the tomb that he walked out of, but whether it was this exact site or not, it didn't matter because what I realized in that moment is that the distance between where Jesus was crucified and where Jesus rose, it was just a stone's throw away. And I had never in my life thought about it that way in all my years of reading the scripture and thinking about that week. I always pictured that he died on one side of the holy city and was buried and rose a long, long, long way away. But in that moment, I saw that the distance between our pain and despair and the resurrection and new life, it wasn't far at all. And that's how it is in real life. So how could we lose heart?